0: You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at
1: sportsmansempire.com. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe whitetail deer share their secrets to success.
0: And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, (coughs) John Peter. I'm John Tito, White Dale Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Welcome back, everybody. Hopefully everybody's doing well. I just want to put it out there to make sure everyone understands. Uh, I'm I'm busy. I'm going into my design season. I start here in a week or so, and then I'm busy through the rest of the year. If you're trying to contact me for consulting visits, you need to get a hold of me soon. I will be out of space for 24. I may already be out of space as of today, so you need to be considerate of that. And part of it is I'm doing more turnkey properties in concert with a little more cutting myself and then you know I have to limit myself to the, the type of clients that we're working with. We want people to do achieve success and that's doing the changes, making the improvements. Hiring somebody that you want to give you suggestions and just making your own decisions from there is important, but it's also considering their point of view. I found a lot of these clients recently that have hired me, they kind of go off into a left direction. And I asked myself, you know, you took the time to listen and hire me but you're not taking the, the time to consider the advice and guidance that you're given. I work on tons of properties every year, and I would ask everyone, sit back and ask yourself the question, if you're going to spend, you know, I've heard an absurd amount in some of these consultants, a large amount of money to you know, reach a point of success, follow the steps and process. And you want to have a consultant that's willing to work through you through that process, so it's contactable. They're able to understand your issues. You're able to get feedback, etc. In my process with my clients, I want to make sure that they understand that I'm available to them. It past the map that I give you or package that I give you. I'm there to support you through the process because the recycling or feedback I get allows me to do better for the next client and also learn from your mistakes and glean off you know opportunities that I can kind of exploit. As I'm building you know, my clientele and I'm kind of focusing my business. Last piece of it, my masterclass is out there. The contact page is updated. I had a screw up, so I wasn't getting messages. So if you did contact me for my masterclass, I'd ask you that you recycle or send your inquiry in. It should come to my email now. I apologize. I found out recently um, at least 10 clients were trying to get a hold of me and could not get hold of me through my website. So it is available. You should be able to get a hold of me now. So please you know, reach out and, uh, you know, I, I apologize for that, but I'm, I'm the, the cook, the cleaner, the janitor, and I do the timber cutting. So, you know, there's a, there's a, it's a lot for me and, and I hope you understand that. All right, so we're gonna switch topics. We did all this technical discussion. I did my solo hundred podcast and I kind of broke down shrubland properties, plants, you know, things that I consider when I'm, you know, designing a property and what I value most when I look at the landscape. But We're going to go a different direction, and and this is an area that I'm going to say I need improvement on, so I'm excited to have this conversation. Jaden, are you on the line? Yep, I'm with you. All right, so we have a new guest on the line, and I'll let him introduce himself. He's not from my area, which is good. And, Jaden, where are you from? Minnesota? Yep, Minnesota. Okay, so you'll notice an accent with Jaden, which will be we'll make fun of him through the podcast. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to hear a little about you, your business. Um, you have an interesting take on things, and I, you've got quite a bit of experience. So we want to kind of exploit that today.
1: No, that sounds great. Um, so yeah, I'm just going to start explaining a little bit about myself and, and what I do. So I'm Jaden Bjorklund. I'm from uh, Minnesota. I. Grew up kind of in the metro area of south of the Twin Cities area, but have a family farm up in northwest Minnesota, which I spent my summers at and kind of where I got um, my fix on the the forestry, the wildlife, the hunting kind of aspect of it. Um, And what I do now is I'm a forestry consultant, a consulting forester. Um, Sometimes I like to call myself more of a, you know, a habitat consultant because I know the forestry knowledge that's what I went to school for, but I'm more looking at it through a deer hunter's perspective. I'm a big deer hunter. That's kind of what my first and foremost, you know, focus is, is deer hunting. Um, But then I bring in that forestry knowledge and then habitat knowledge to kind of bring it all together. So I'll go to folks who have private hunting land, recreation land. They might live on it, too, and write these management plans for them. Uh, on how to better manage their their forest land but that includes their open areas you know your food plots your wetlands kind of everything Um, but then because they get this management plan written and because I'm a certified plan writer for the state of Minnesota um, they qualify for incentive programs and I'll kind of help them with you know other incentives that might be available to them as well Um, and it's mainly in Minnesota that I'm doing but I'm kind of expanding a little bit now uh, into Wisconsin as well which you know it kind of varies by state, but every state seems to have some some kind of similarities in it.
0: Yeah, I think that's important. I like your background and I think this is fitting for the topic today. So I'll just give you my ignorance so people, you know, can hopefully understand sometimes, you know, we're we're biased. And I'm I'm my mm-hmm. time biased by a lot of these programs that are out there because I don't see the value. And and that's that's always so myopic and, and lopsided because one of the issues that I typically have with clients is, you know, in, in my state, they enacted a law. Uh, it's known as the 480A program. Uh, it's in a lot of states, and it allows landowners to get, essentially get discounts for enrolling in the program, at least in their taxes. So it lowers your tax basis, which is a mm-hmm. positive thing. But a part of those programs and plans, it, it, it limits your flexibility to create some of the, you know, we'll say the habitat types that I would prefer. So, like, it's not that you can't cut an area. But you have to manage it in a schedule. And so mm-hmm. that may take away from my ability to manipulate a particular area. And so although the benefits are there financially, the limitations exist. And those limitations to me have kind of sparked this, ooh, I want to stay away from, you know, federal state programs that what would limit me. And and that's not a great perspective. In fact, I would ask anybody who's listening to this podcast now, you know, look at your state you know, local supporting agencies, and, and some of these are state, and some of them are federal, and we're, we're going to talk probably about some federal ones today, but think about some of the incentive programs that are available, and recognize there's an application process, you know, look, look at if you're eligible, obviously, first, but you can work with folks like Jaden to help, you know, prepare yourself, a part of your management plans to give yourself, you know, opportunity to save a little money, and I think, you know, Jaden, I'll just ask you this question, and i'm probably not different from a lot of people in this sense when i come to you and i say i need help and you're exploring the options and you're saying okay well you know you've got these land easements or you've got this you know conventional issue whatever the case may be i want to i want to leverage something to help save me a little money and um, you know what are the programs available to me and how does it actually work like you know through you know the feds through nrcs or through your state agencies like w- what do you do
1: yeah so Again, it kind of depends on, you know, first I'd like to at least get a better understanding of the landowner, um, the history of their property, and kind of what their goals are. Um, And then it'll give me a better, you know, background on what would make the most sense for them. So in Minnesota, we have these two incentive programs that you qualify for, like I mentioned, after getting this management plan written. One is similar to a lot of other states where it basically just lowers Um, their property taxes, and then there's another one where they basically get paid on a per acre basis for putting acres on their property into what's called a covenant, which basically just says they're not going to develop those acres, they're not going to use them for active agriculture. They can still do timber sales, they can do timber stand improvement, they can do food plots, pretty much everything else they'd want to do. That's where Minnesota, I think, is a pretty unique state, where our state incentive programs are not very strict where you can do pretty much whatever you'd want besides build on those acres that you have in the program or use it for some sort of active agriculture. Like our property in Northwest Minnesota, I'm constantly doing, you know, timber stand improvement type stuff, doing different cuttings, you know, doing some logging here and there too. And it's not like I have to report any of that. I don't really have to, you know, have any sort of, you know, checking boxes or anything like that. Um, And that's what makes it really nice and in Minnesota, kind of a a no-brainer for a lot of landowners because there's not a whole lot of hoops to jump through for the most part um, besides just getting, you know, me out there writing this management plan. Um, But then again, you know, having the right guy out there writing your plan for you because the big thing is... They say in there, you know, you have to be following your management plan to some degree, but they're not super strict on, you know, making sure you're following it to a T or anything like that. But if you're out there managing your property, you know, doing some improvement, planting some trees, doing some forest and improvement, things like that, that's all they're really looking for, um, for Minnesota specifically, at least.
0: Yeah, and and you have to recognize that the federal programs that are released to where a lot of the funding comes from, it it trickles down to the state, and the state has they're incentivized to you know push these programs but it may be for a specific purpose like if you're working mm-hmm. um wildlife you know improvements and it'll be for you know a particular species like box turtle could be one in my, my particular yep. area which you know uh, you may have you know black duck issue or mm-hmm. uh, you know a, a golden wing warbler issue yep. right and so it what what happens, and this is interesting, and this is where I kind of like start to lose my my patience with things, is um, you know you have these incentives that are very we'll say species specific, and it's it's super helpful, but then they have very broad um, opportunities you know these conservation programs where you know you can you can get a thousand trees through the state. And we've had them here recently where, you know, Mm -hmm. the the local NRCS offered these programs up and they were offering, you know, just a ton of trees, but again, without guidance, without really kind of direction. So you see that there's, there's wisdom in that, but there's also waste. So, you know, I would ask like if I was approaching you and I said, okay, I have a goal and my goal is to improve my habitat for, for for deer, for example. And obviously Mm -hmm. that's the focus of this podcast. How would you navigate that? Because there's a chance that you could offset it against a, a, a program that you have locally that would um, allow you to do some you know, disturbance. Because a lot of these animals are disturbance dependent. Like, you know, they'll, yeah. they'll want, you know, a disproportionate mature forest or climatic force that are reduced into kind of these small successional communities and habitat patches and, and just things that we can do as, as landowners. How do you kind of fit that into the equation? Because like, that's, that's probably what a lot of people ask of you.
1: Yep, yep, and that's the big one that, you know, is, is nationwide is the Natural Resource Conservation Service, the NRCS. So I'm a certified technical service provider through the NRCS is what it's called. So I also do a little bit of that, and, you know, the, the NRCS is, you, you really go down a rabbit hole with the, with the opportunities that are in there, and, again, it really goes back to the landowner and, honestly, how much patience they have. Um, when it comes to the NRCS, there's going to be, kind of a, a waiting period in terms of if the funding's available and things like that. And then, you know, specifically, you kind of got to do it to their specs, which, and again, it kind of depends on what they're looking for. If it's a tree planting, you know, if it's a native prairie kind of type planting, um, if it's even, you know, they have timber stand improvement practices you can do too. Um, so it kind of depends on what exactly uh, practice that landowner is wanting to do. Um, and after kind of looking at it, if whatever the NRCS is saying, you know, their specs, if that kind of adds up to what the landowner's goals might be. Because um, it's nice with those NRCS ones um, to some degree that it's, you know, usually like a two year kind of contract, something like that, where you just end up implementing the project and then you have to, you know, have some sort of maintenance at some point or another and then they, you know, check back to make sure you did exactly what you're supposed to do or made an effort kind of thing, and then you get reimbursed the money. So there's not a long-term, you know, kind of contract or anything like that um, on those projects. So it, it sometimes can be a pretty good deal where if the landowner, you know, has, I think the timber stand improvement one's a pretty simple one uh, where they would get, obviously, just reimburse the money for doing some of that implementation and then, you know, that they were going to do anyway, sort of thing.
0: I think people would find interest in thinking about a project that you worked on. And if we can focus, this is, you know, kind of around deer. And, and I know you've done a lot of clear cuts. I've watched, you know, some of the projects you've put together that you publicized. You know, if we're going into, you know, a, a project that you're working on, you know, we want to leverage, you know, state or federal funds in order to provide some offset or cost, diversion for, for the client. But at the same point, we, we've got a project to perform. And in your duties, can you kind of go through the process of a client, what their goals were, you know, what the programs you leveraged, you know, what, what the financial benefit was and savings that you think they experienced? And, and, you know, you can be specific or general. And then, you know, where are they at today? I kind of want to know the process with somebody that's gone through this.
1: Yeah. And the big ones that I've Done is you know invasive species removal. So in Minnesota, buckthorn and honeysuckle is a big one, bush honeysuckle. Um, so that's I think a really good one to use some of those finances and and some of those incentive programs because and that you know you can kind of go down a rabbit hole with the you know the invasive species thing and you know how much is really worth trying to remove and all that good stuff, but. For this particular landowner, they had it bad. And it's like, you got to at least try to, you know, attempt to remove some of it. So some of them said reached out to the NRCS office and seen what funds are available. And basically, it's a matter of kind of getting on a waiting list and seeing, again, what kind of funds end up popping up. They give you a call, and they kind of write up a project plan, you know, exactly what, you know, herbicide options you have, you know, the ways to do it. You can either hire it out to a contractor that would come in and actually do the removal, or you could actually you know buy some saws the chemicals and do the work yourself. And again, you kind of have two years uh, give or take um, to do that implementation. Um, they came back and I think it was maybe three acres of removal, three or four acres of removal and I'm not going to remember the exact amount, but I think it was somewhere between 2,000 to 4, thousand dollars, something like that. yeah um, so it kind of depends again on how bad the buckthorn or the you know the invasives are too that'll kind of determine um you know how much they get reimbursed but for something like that i think that one those ones are always and there's state funding or at least for minnesota through the dnr for things like that too i think the invasive species one is always an easy one that if you're already gonna you know start to remove the invasive you might as well get reimbursed for it kind of thing or get some money back um that's just one case that kind of, you know, seems to always pop up is those invasive species one.
0: Yeah, I think the cost sharing piece of that's huge because, you know, some people would argue that as long as you're covering the cost, if they're willing to give the time anyhow, like you've already reserved the time and it really covers, you know, some of your cost of expenses like herbicide alone, it may be mm-hmm. worth it. If you're, you know, getting some payment for the time that you're investing and you always got to think, what is your time worth? You know, yep. it, it's even more you know, beneficial depending on in the magnitude. The numbers kind of sound right just based on what you said. That that makes sense to me. I don't mm-hmm. I don't feel like you know most clients and I'll just be frank about this, three to four to five acres, depending on the you know the the significance of, of that particular species on the landscape, that's a lot of work. And if that's mm-hmm. the majority, I don't think people realize like how much work that may be. And that question, yeah. the, the question in that job specifically, once those species were removed, what, what was the maintenance side of that? Like, what was their, what was their motive next? Were they planting mm-hmm. species? Were they just letting areas kind of naturally regenerate and, and trying to assess? Like, what, what was the next steps with them?
1: Yeah, so that's obviously, the, you know, the catch that it is it's, it's an ongoing maintenance sort of thing of, you know, whenever it's kind of continuing to pop up, you go back and take care of it. And it's something, too, that you can, you know, continue to apply for that cost share, both the NRCS and even the state cost share funding. So year after year, you can kind of continue to apply for that to, you know, expand the areas or maintain the certain areas. Um, this particular one, um, I think they were underplanting with kind of some different native shrubs that were in the area. Um, I think it was kind of some hazelnut. There might have been oh, some choke cherry, some kind of common, you know, native shrubs that are going to be in that area too to hopefully try and at least compete with the buckthorn. That you know, more than likely, it's going to be coming back, but hopefully not as strong as it was before. Um, type of thing, but you know that can obviously just vary in in how they go about that, and that's with you know, they'll work with the NRCS and, you know, for some reason they might want to do, you know, just kind of let it come back and see what, what happens sort of thing. Otherwise there might be a landowner who has more time in their hands and more money on their hands. Like, you know, I want to try to plan something to kind of get ahead of it sort of thing. So a lot of that does depend on the site and, and available resources sort of thing for that landowner.
0: Yeah. Very interesting and good examples there. And so let, let's take it to another level. So let's say you have an intensely managed property where you you did a force management plan, you know, it's got the ultimate goals of, you know, sustainable timber, you know, long term goals, short term goals. And then on top of it, they've got this this other piece where they've got these wildlife goals. And, you know, in your particular area, your I don't know what your general focal species, is, but it's likely deer. Uh, do you have wolves yep. wolves in your area as well or no? Yeah, up a little bit. Um not not too much. We're kind of on the
1: fringe of it, but if you go, you know, north twenty miles, you end up getting into a decent wolf population.
0: And so what about turkeys and grouse?
1: Yep, yep, a good a good population of turkeys, good population of rough grouse. Um, even got some pheasants in our, our neck of the woods in that northwest kind of Minnesota area where you get a mix of egg, you know, kind of big woods almost, and then kind of coniferous kind of forest, kind of a mixture of everything.
0: Yeah, yeah, pretty diverse, and that landscape's kind of interesting. So in those situations where you're kind of working with you know, a, a landowner and you're saying, okay, I want to make sure, you know, I'm working the lands for wildlife and I'm also working for sustainable timber harvest. And you're, you're being as smart about that. And then you're utilizing these programs. You know, some of them could be land management for uh, agriculture purposes. Like you just brought up Mm -hmm. agriculture. There's, there's a lot of initiatives to, you know, uh, don't leave the ground bare, you know, utilizing cover crops. You, You hear this other thing on carbon credits and, and, I don't know if that's a bit of, bit of a crock, but, um, <laughs> there, there is some incentive to, to not harvest timber or to maintain timber timber in a certain status. I want to know other programs that you think have been kind of monumental or like game changing, at least project wise that you're like, okay, that makes sense. It's really gotten somebody somewhere because I think, again, people have skepticism and we're trying to, we're trying to eliminate that.
1: Yeah. I think one that I probably should have brought up a little bit earlier, um, and it, it again, it kind of depends the current condition of the property. But if there's a, a landowner who has had a, a field that's been agriculture, or a majority of the property has been agriculture, that really opens up a lot of doors for you know some of these incentive projects. I think, in my opinion, the biggest you know kind of bang for your buck for trying to create some good habitat and at the same time get you know a lot of the cost covered and kind of make some money off the deal is you know CRP. That's been around forever, but it's one that we've done on our family property, and now just recently, this past spring, we just added another 80 acres um, of CRP. So that's through the Farm Service Agency. And they, you know, it all kind of depends on the area and, you know, how flexible, you know, some of these agencies or local agencies are. I was able to pick what specific species I wanted to have in our mix. So we ended up doing. Um, some tree plantings around, you know, let's say an entire forty acres. Did an entire tree planting of coniferous trees. I think I can't remember exactly what it was off the top of my head. It kind of, I think a mix of spruce, red pine, and maybe white pine. Um, you know, kind of a, a shelter belt almost type thing, sure. yeah. which would kind of screen off that forty acres. And then in the middle, we had a mix of, you know, basically a pollinator package or a prairie kind of type planting with a mix of, you know, the big blue stem, your switchgrass, your Indian grass, and then a variety of other um, native uh, plants in there too. Um, so with that, again, and, you know, whether or not it makes sense for that landowner to do a native prairie planting, but again, there's CRP trees, that's one that we've done our, on our uh, family property, which ended up being a lot of you know, coniferous trees, some pine trees that were planted. So for you know, folks in the north, if you have an egg field and not very much conifer cover around you, those CRP trees might be an awesome you know, addition to provide some of that thermal cover in the north with obviously some harsher winters. Um, and it all depends on your soil of what you get paid, but you usually get you know, the cost of the seed, And even a lot of the implementation paid for. And then on top of it, you know, I think us, where we're at, we were getting paid like $90 an acre or something like that, um, you know, yearly for having it in CRP. It is a little bit of a longer contract, you know, 10 to 15 years. But you usually get at least, you know, an acre and a half for a food plot. And you can always kind of move that food plot around, but you would just have to plant that food plot back into some sort of native habitat if you ended up moving it, kind of thing. Yeah. Um. So again, again, it depends on the you know the local agency and whatnot for how flexible. Because then I'm wanting to plant, you know, you know, diversity ends up being the biggest thing, obviously, when you're managing for for deer, but a lot of wildlife. So I wanted you know to put in some shrub pockets in that in that CRP mix to provide some good bedding habitat and kind of allow some native things some white american plums some willows some red order dog with things like that to be able to get established in there um versus you know maybe if it's a different agency they might say you know no you can't have any woody you know woody shrubs or anything like that in there um but i think crp is always a really good one to explore um if it's if it's a a landowner who has agriculture currently on a spot that they're looking to improve.
0: Yeah. And I, I made a statement like this recently in the last podcast I did was what was your general expense per acre. And I, I should have been a little more specific and described like in field conditions where there's, you know, slow progression from agriculture to you know successional field habitat. What, what is it, what is it like? And what is the expense? And in that description, if you don't have a lot of woody encroachment and you're kind of starting, you know, or two, three years after agriculture, you know, you're looking at three to $500 an acre just for implementation. That would be, you know, some hand and foot work, plantings, those type of things. And, again, you know, that's expensive when you're talking an area. Maybe you're converting a 15-acre block or 20-acre block. So on that conservation reserve program, and there's there's a multitude of them, I, I don't – I wish I had a list of, of – of the different programs. I love the fact that you introduced the fact that you can have a food plot in those settings. I know yeah. that there's, there's grass and legume plantings that I've seen in some of the programs where they want to emphasize, you know, a certain type of species. And then you brought up another point is, well, they allowed for some woody encroachment or, you know, woody type species, you know, again, wild plum would be a good example there. Mm-hmm. And then the other piece of this is, you know, that conservation piece of it, you know, where they're focusing on, And we talked about shelter belts as well. So there's elements of that that seem so beneficial to kind of shaping the landscape. I guess the question I have more importantly is, what type of limitations or restrictions do they have in the shape, form? Like, do they limit where you can put trees specifically because of the soil type? And and do they, they kind of like segment things or draw a map or plan for you, which may orchestrate maybe some differences in what you'd like to do as a landowner. Are there any limitations that people should be aware of? Yeah, that's where, you know, they kind of sometimes
1: will have a list of of tree species or or certain species that would grow well in their soil type or in their area. And, you know, they can sometimes be limited to that. It's always something you could ask them, like, hey, I I was looking at maybe planting, you know, this species is something that I could do you know, it seems like they're usually relatively flexible with the landowner if it's something they're wanting to implement, but obviously if it's something that's not native to the area or they don't think it's going to grow well, they don't want to spend their money cost sharing it if it's going to end up, you know, being a failed planting anyways sort of thing. Um, but there's not a whole lot of, you know, limitations for the most part with, with some of those. I mean, you have to do some sort of Maintenance to it again, you know, whether it's a prescribed burning or mowing for if it's native prairie planting. Um, and then for like a CRP trees, there might be a thinning or a releasing, which could just be like mowing around the plantation. If it's end up being, you know, a conifer plantation or some sort of um, tree planting. Um, and then, you know, you can't bring heavy equipment on those the native grass plantings specifically. Again, if you have that area for the food plot, that's where you're able to do it there. Um, But, you know, and I don't know where the case would be where you'd be driving heavy equipment all over the place sort of thing. But there's not honestly uh, too much uh, crazy limitations to it.
0: Yeah, and I think that's important because I think a lot of people, you know, recognize that they're going to do something. And how limited am I going to be as a result of, of, you know, this program? The one thing I will say is you did mention time. So you've got these Mm short-term and long-term type programs. So that flexibility might might be critical to you. And a lot of times you can correct me if I'm wrong, but these are renewable programs. So you, you sometimes renew them every year and their, yep. their duration will is, is contiguous. So if it's a 10 year program. You renew the next year, it's still 10 years. At least that's my understanding for some of the programs that I've been associated with. Yep.
1: Yep. Those CRP ones, you can always, after that 10 to 15 year contract, you can always try to, to renew it. Um, and depending, again, on kind of the local area and everything like that, you might be able to renew it or you might not. And then, you know, you're not in CRP, so you're not, you know, binded to any of those contracts at that point. Yeah. But, yeah, you made a good point about the time thing because that's what I always tell, you know, landowners, too. It's like, well, how big of a rush are you to do some of this stuff? Because, you know, a lot of the state cost-sharing stuff throughout, you know, the nation, basically, the state cost-sharing um, and even the NRCS ones, you know, like we've talked about, are short-term, you know, one, two years you have – to be able to implement that project and then after that you know you're done kind of thing so you know it's it's some that are like you know if it's only one to two years you know might as well try and get some money to 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 put some habitat on the ground if it's something that makes sense for the landowner
0: yeah i i I like i like that i also like the fact that some of the programs require the maintenance and follow-up and so having a schedule keeps these people on task i think a lot of people get distracted and they're not really sure like just as an example when i started this i'm I was thinking about a client that I talked to the other day, and they just they didn't they took the plan and they emphasized some of the changes, but they didn't focus on the big picture. Mm-hmm. And some of that's improving the general soil in, in an area, and it's being conscious of that. I mean, that could be you know including manure right in in your application. Um, mm-hmm. You know, th- there's various suggestions that we provide. We we'll, I'll call it mineral burns where you, you burn the the adjacent trees. So you know there's opportunities to build ideal soil on your landscape and and the only reason i go there is you know i think a lot of people have these visions of grandeur and they're like okay i want to create this ultimate property and i've got this option and that option and this option if you sign up for you know these programs that are long term that may not co- totally coincide with your mindset and mm-hmm. i would pay close attention to a consultant that has recommended certain things to say okay if you want to improve your soil The steps you need to take are this. And a lot of times they'll just be focused on, oh, well, he's growing corn over there. Well, corn is essentially a raping plant, the way I look at it. And so its ability to feed the soil and to be uh, synergistic uh, is limited. Mm -hmm. Again, off topic conversation, but it's related (laughs) to be conservative and kind of having this ecological focus and doing the best you can for your land. And I think even though we're nearsighted a lot of times, I think some of these programs the motivation to have term to it or some duration to it is to keep you going in a direction. And it's going mm-hmm. in a positive direction. If you're banging your head against the wall or you haven't planned this out well, like you've got a hundred acres and you want to allocate, you know, 40 acres of grassland to a CRP program, then again, meet some goals and objectives that you have. You know, that's a significant chunk, 40% of that property you know, is that a good long term decision for you, you've got to really kind of think a plan through that. And then a part of the design philosophy you've got guys, you know, like, like myself, Jaden, they can provide some recommendations, say, here's the layout, this is like, what I'd like to do, and see if the, you know, the the owner, so to speak, that, you know, the federal agent, the state agent, would work with you to ensure that, you know, multiple goals are met. And if they're not met, Mm -hmm. that's a plan you may not want to walk into. And, you know, I think that's important to consider. It's, it's, it's a cost savings, but is the cost worth, you know, your overall objective? And and we're going to learn things as time goes on, I think through the science and through just anecdotal evidence of, you know, new concepts and philosophies. I'll try to help promote that uh, ideas and concepts that will bring our hunting to the next level. And I think some of these programs may not be so cutting edge all the time. I, I just, yep. I'm ranting, but I mean, I don't know. Any thoughts on that?
1: Yep. No, exactly. And it's something that, like you said, you know, whether or not it, it makes sense um, for the landowner, um, there's something that I was I had of to tongue and I'm kind of forgetting about it. But the the NRCS ones, again, you know, it's just going to be kind of a waiting game um, at that point, and whether or not it, it makes sense for the landowner to have to wait for that funding. Um, or, you know, end up just wanting to, if they have plenty of money and plenty of time, it's like, I was telling us like, hey, you can just go and, you know, buy the trees, buy the equipment, whatever it ends up doing. It just, you know, plant the, you know, the tree rows or whatever it is they're, they're putting in. You can just do it yourself kind of thing. And I can tell you, you know, how you can do it. Um, but if you want to get some money back, you know, you might as well try to look into this. But the big thing, this is what I was going to say, um, is it doesn't hurt to, you know, just call, you know, your, your local NRCS office or, you know, your DNR agency, whoever it is, I kind of tell landlords like, you know, it's, it's sometimes worth just shopping around almost just seeing what's out there yeah. and what's available because you'd be surprised sometimes of after talking with the local, you know, whoever it is, local agency, um, you're like, oh, that doesn't sound too bad or, oh, I'm going to get, you know, reimbursed, you know, half of it or 75% of it or all of it. It's like, well, oh, that doesn't seem like a bad deal. Um, so I always tell anyone, I was like, it's at least worth a call and and seeing kind of what your options are because that's always nice just to have different options and especially nowadays with the amount of funding that that's getting pushed to some of these local agencies, it's like there's the NRCS, there's the DNR, your local DNR agency, there's even you know fish and wildlife agencies, there's you know your Ducks Unlimited and things like that, which usually get pushed through you know federal and kind of the fish and wildlife, but then. Um, Soil and water conservation districts, they're getting a lot of of funding now too with some of these uh, cost sharing projects. So there can just be a lot of different agencies that have money that, you know, and you could go down a rabbit hole too, that sometimes don't do a great job at promoting it to landowners that they might just be sitting on it. And then, oh, yeah, by the way, we do have all this money that we can give you to do exactly what you're wanting to do with this tree planting or with this native prairie restoration, whatever it is. Um, So sometimes just, again, picking up a phone and calling and asking um, can go a long ways because it's amazing how much it varies even by local area. They might have certain goals for the watershed or whatever the case may be. For doing, you know, tree plantings, native prairie restoration, whatever. Well, again, whatever the case may be.
0: Yeah, and I think it, I think what you could do as a landowner is just get smarter on what your landscape currently you know provides, and and what areas. So we always talk about breaking properties into management zones. I know you do this with your your clients, and, mm-hmm, and yep. having having a purpose and objective for those management zones, and developing like so. If you have a riparian area, and you're like, okay, I want to create this buffer strip in it. I've got a ton of dead plants in here. Uh, I've got erosion issues. Okay, so we want to minimize erosion. We want to include species in there that are beneficial to some of those, you know, ground species we talked talked about that are terrestrial that are on sites adjacent to that. Potentially want to have, you know, maybe ducks in, in those particular areas. So it's it's a size and space thing. It's the depth of the water type of species that are in those areas. But taking kind of the next steps, and they've got you know, federal programs that will maybe support that particular objective. So for that, you know, depending on the size and and eligibility, you know, you may meet that, you know, criteria per se in a conversation that you have with a service provider at, you know, your local NRCS office. So, you know, you can go online, you can go search what your local office is. Mine's 20 minutes down the road or 10 minutes down the road and stop and have a conversation with them, let them educate you. And then part of that is like, okay, let me start looking at my landscape in a little more detail. Okay. I got my, these terrestrial sites, these aquatic sites. What can I do with the, you know, what can I do with these bodies of water? How do I stabilize stream banks? Like just in that Mm -hmm. one example, and what species can I include in those areas that will replace, you know, unwanted plants, particularly if you have, you know, these encroaching or interfering noxious type plants in there. And and who knows what that could be. That could be common buckthorn, for example. So, you know, just, just think about, you know, what, options you have, but like your point, like go shop around. I don't do enough of this. So I'm going to fully admit, I don't do enough of this. This is not something I do with my clients because you know, I'm providing them, you know, perspective ideas on on work objectives that I think they can accomplish. But if there's an, there's a driving feature behind this, meaning, you know, there's some incentive for them to push ahead and they can dedicate more time because there's a schedule associated with it then mm-hmm. they're going to find the end game of, of success. And I brought up that client earlier with they're not working their soil correctly. They're making decisions, and they're saying, oh, shit, I did something wrong. And they're not saying, well, what, what can I do to remedy that? And they're just saying, well, I'm going to go do this thing over here. That's going to fix that issue It's over there because it's going to create more food. Well, I mean, you already made a decision. You could let things reclaim, and uh, you could support restoration in that area. But maybe that doesn't make sense. Maybe you want to you know, look at a bigger picture or what was the overall plan. And obviously some things, once you put them on paper, they don't work in exact form that you anticipated as well. So it's that uh, resiliency and and ability to rebound when you're starting to make some of these changes without being too specific. So I think soil restoration, a part of this whole carbon sequestration is like a huge piece of it. And one of it is building organic material in the soil. I mean, if we just Mm -hmm. focus that across the landscape, And that was an incentive of ours. A lot of this pollution and emissions issues that everyone seems to yab about would go away. Just increasing the organic material across your landscape. You know, just increasing Mm it half a percent would be absolutely huge to, uh, you know, water cycle and, and, and many other things. And so I... I'm going on a tangent, but the, I, I I think about a lot of things that are not deer related that are deer related. And, and, yep. you know, I'm just a, I'm a small blip on the map, at least from, from my location of 46 acres of hunting heaven, yep. you know, that, that I, my footprint is such where I'm, I'm working a, a small ecosystem and I'm benefiting, you know, the animals based on their, you know, their range in, in such a limited capacity. So, you know, I just say that is build organic material on, across your landscapes and that limit erosion, have uh, natural plants, uh, have a lot of insects that allow propagation of those plants. And, um, you know, don't do things to access. Uh, Clear cutting can some, by, sometimes be the worst thing you can do if you're not managing the soil and you do it, you do it at the wrong time. Yeah, um, yeah. Y- you can lose a lot of resources uh, in those, those areas. All right. Yeah. Rant over. Anything you want to talk about here?
1: Well, the one thing that I just uh, just remember when you're talking kind of the more erosion side, I think, of the soil is there was a landowner that I had that, you know, kind of more rolling topography sort of thing and um, had some erosion issues. And they're like, oh, do you know, you know, of anything that I can do with that? And obviously kind of recommended different plantings that you could do to try to, you know, mitigate that erosion with, you know, whether it's a variety of grasses or plants, but then, you know, putting in some, uh, willow cuttings or red odor dogwood cuttings just to try to create some, some bank stabilization there. But right away I was like, well, you might qualify for some sort of cost sharing stuff through the soil and water conservation district. And then I don't know, I think just a, a few months ago, they, they sent me a bunch of pictures that, Hey, we got the, this cost sharing project fully you know funded through the soil and water district. And now we're getting, cause supposedly that, um, part of the drainage ended up going into an area that was historically a wetland. So they're able to get that restored and they're getting, you know, pretty much the whole thing paid for. So again, it, it kind of goes a long way just reaching oh. out and seeing what might be available. Cause I was like, Oh, that is awesome. I mean, that yeah, is yeah, yeah, that's it's awesome. exactly what they were wanting too, because they were kind of like, Oh, how do we get maybe this a little bit more water here, you know, kind of some more open water maybe. Um, and again, that's where I'm like, well, you, you might have something there that historically was, some sort of wetland and there might've been, you know, a stream that might've went through there, whatever the case may be. And again, just kind of reaching out to, to your local uh, service provider and seeing what's available again can go a long ways. Because so that was something that I was like, Oh, that's, that's awesome.
0: You know, it's funny you say, I, I love that. That's a great story. I, I took some training yesterday um, uh, out of a, a guys out of uh, Washington state and, and I'm focusing on some, some enhanced improvements with kind of building uh, water uh, water restoration or water repositories on, on landscapes. And so to this point is water collection is huge for a lot of these clients. And it's manipulating, you know, kind of the uh, considering terrain features, but it's manipulating them in a way where you're getting the benefit of these, these water resources just to increase... And we've talked about this on the podcast, the nutrient availability because of the, the volume of water that allows kind of plant to photosynthesize and grow at such a fast rate. It's, it's ability to kind of enhance utilization of the resident mineral content is greater. Uh, it creates a greater attraction for the animal life. But the way that they're doing some of these projects and shaping kind of these waterways and contouring the landscape where they're getting the maximum benefit and they have, you know, they, they don't have dry summers anymore. It could be so well utilized in these midwest landscapes and just the water availability at the footprint level you know where the plants have access to to you know swales or you know small streams or you know dispelling areas etc can be just hugely beneficial to the landscape and to your animals particularly in grassland settings so i i just wanted to kind of bring up a point where There's really more cutting edge and thoughtful and mindful practices that are starting to become available to people publicly where they're talking about kind of developing, like in my area, we're developing food forests, which is a concept I don't think a lot of people understand. But I talked a little bit about it then in that thicket discussion where I talked about having plants that are producing biological resources like wild plum is an example, winterberry is an example. You know, and, and the, again, these may not be deer focused per se, but, you know, the resources for animals that are, you know, producing um, and help kind of sustain kind of that wildlife population. That being said, you know, water is probably our most valued resources. So from an ecological standpoint, we've got to start to consider, you know, the, the relative benefits of collecting water in the landscape and allowing this you know, lower temperature grasses. And, you know, again, again, nutrient availability to the plants, making them more nutrient dense and water rich. And, you know, that just becomes a, a major benefit, I think, to some of the wildlife and just an overlooked aspect, I think, of most landowners' properties. And I'm trying to leverage that information when I'm, I'm trying to build my own property and saying, okay, how can I create these spillways in my property where I'm, I'm essentially, you know, moisturizing portions of my property giving that opportunity to have you know more nutrient dense you know available water in plants at a a higher rate because again it's a consumable depending on what species are in there so you're regulating you know the plants that are in there it's just it's just being more mindful of water collection on the landscape ran over but super important topic and um, I think it's something that ties into wetland restoration and management Mm -hmm. uh, and and stream (laughs) management in general and you know, you've, I've seen a couple areas where I've been recently where, you know, we've had a lot of rains and you look at, you know, one percentage of, you know, a segment of, of their streamways and it's cloudy and, and dark and you see kind of some frosty organic material bubbling and you're like, wow, that doesn't have good bank stabilization. Wow, they're losing mm-hmm. a, a lot of this organic material because, you know, their their inability to to absorb the water you know, kind of throughout, maybe there's compacted ground, et cetera. And so it's looking, you know, we're looking at the levels of calcium, magnesium, copper, like there's there's factors that I'm looking at on your landscape to say, okay, you're deficient in these areas, which creates this polarization where you don't have the infiltration. So there's a lot of this in in, in the scheme of, wait, how's this benefiting my deer? (laughs) I'm asking that question. I'm like, wait, it benefits them in so many different ways because we don't let an ounce of water leave the landscape. And every single plant that's adjacent there grows at a faster rate, right? Because it has more water availability. So when it has the adequate sun, and it's something that we want to propagate in the landscape. And by the way, I'm noticing in some of these really wet areas... The plant life that deer typically don't consume in dry areas, they're consuming in, in wet areas at a higher rate. So it just goes to show you, a- anecdotally, there is benefit to maybe having some of these conservation programs on your landscape, or at least stealing from the ideology and applying it you know, to, to benefit you know, your ultimate objective of having you know, larger deer, more deer, more interest on your property. And those are the general goals of most people when I, I meet with them. So
1: mm-hmm. just just, yeah. a,
0: just a thought there and something that, that I've been kind of just, just playing around with every now and again.
1: Yeah, no, 100%. I do think the wetlands kind of go under the radar in terms of, you know, things you can do to improve them for, you know, deer, but obviously a lot of other wildlife. And um, from my experience, if anyone's looking for some sort of wetland restoration or improvements, the, the Fish and Wildlife Service has always been the best contact for, for looking for improvements. Um, it's something that we've done on our own property where we ended up being able to put in, you know, a small dike that ended up creating a, a little holding pond for more open water for um, a variety of, you know, waterfall. Um, but then at the same time, you know, it kind of creates a little bit of a water hole for deer as well. Um, and I think that's yeah a really cool kind of thing that you could kind of look into is the wetland restoration And, you know, how it can kind of correlate to deer is, you know, maybe it's getting the wetland a little bit more drier than what it normally might be, which ends up being an increase in shrub and more trees and kind of more of, um, you know, kind of a meadow and not necessarily, you know, mucky wetland that you would think of and creates just more cover, more browse availability for deer. And at the same time, you know, maybe there's another one where you, you end up putting some sort of control structure. I've seen quite a few of those um, with the landowners that the fish and wildlife ended up putting in some sort of control structure to create a pond or, you know, some kind of holding, holding area that, you know, you mentioned has a lot of, a lot of uh, different benefits. Um, But then, you know, with that, you're creating a pretty nice pitch point for deer hunting at the same time too. So you can kind of all combine it and really make it, it work for you. Um, and, again, some of these different projects, you might be getting the whole thing paid for. Um, the Fish and Wildlife might be actually the ones bringing in their equipment and doing some of this work. Um, and, you know, again, all it takes is kind of a phone call to see see if it's an option for you. But they are big. I will say, you know, they're big on what was there historically or what's there naturally. Right. So, I always, you know, you always get the the landowner who wants to put in you know a water hole or a big you know <laughs> dig it out to create more open water for for duck habitat and you know i talked with the fish and wildlife guys and you know that's the one we, we don't usually ever cost here because everyone wants to do that kind of thing and that depending on the area kind of thing that's something you can just do yourself if you know your local water restrict- and everything like that uh, you can abide by that um but for if someone's looking for real, you know, kind of larger scale, maybe wetland restoration or seeing what their options might be, the the fish and wildlife specifically seem to work a fair amount with that. And they, again, they kind of go off of what was maybe there naturally, and you know, that's something you could even kind of look on yourself doing, you know, Google Earth and going back to the historical imagery and seeing possibly what might've been there um, way back in the day. You can kind of be surprised if, you know, possibly might've been, you know, more of a, you know, a holding pond in a certain part of the property, or maybe it was more dry, or it just kind of depends on the area, obviously.
0: Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And I, I love your examples of how, what you did on your property and the ultimate benefit, like you talked about drying out areas, making them more accessible, the pinch points, you know, using those as a resource, but also, you know, Allowing that to be a factor in in how you hunt the deer, and then on mm-hmm. top of that, I mean, you brought up the whole. I, I, I I've been on a property a couple of years ago where they had done some restoration, and that and part of the earthworks, you know, changes that they made is they made these these really these high mounds in certain areas within, you know, the, these wetland restoration areas mm-hmm. that became. Excellent isolated bedding areas, and we shot we shot a deer actually off one of those, which was just like just so telltale Like I'm like probably not designed for that purpose, but <laughs> yeah, but, but, but it was like awesome. it was so it was so incredible, and and uh, we just had such a good time. And really, you know, in those areas, a lot of concealment. You know, when you're yeah. trying to when you have a small land you know, set up and you're trying to create like these ultimate settings, like. Some of these areas create these like buffer strips, essentially, where you know they you you filter in the deer, and it becomes very inaccessible without a lot of noise, and so the deer become resident in those areas, especially during hunting season, and you you happen to get that three year old that makes it the next age class, mm-hmm, and that's yeah. why you, that's why you see a lot of these folks. Um, uh, I think of. Uh, the, the hunting beast, uh, Dan Infall, right. Yeah. Yep. They're focused on those areas because yeah. you, you get age class just because of the vegetation and the limitations surrounding. It's like, wait, start oh, creating yeah. that on your own property, everybody. I mean, yep. that's a great practice to employ and, and, um, you know, and you can do it in a small area. We're, we're talking, um, we're talking three acres. I mean, a three yep, acre yep. area like that could be, you know, a, a great, a great setup for you kind of as a landowner to give, your deer that, that opportunity for escape cover that they ultimately need. And a lot of people, you know, may, may shy away from that, but again, that could, that could happen with a wetland restoration project, which, you know, um, could be beneficial. And, you know, maybe you add some swamp white oaks in there and and they provide that aesthetic value. You know, it it provides maybe a shade component and, uh, you know, a cover component, you know, kind of in the setup and layout. So, you know, there's a lot that you can do and uh, just be more mindful of, Of the options, and Jane, I think you opened my eyes to some things. And and there's a lot that we don't know, and um, you have to connect with a professional like yourself so you can be more educated. But don't feel like you can't educate yourself and go to your local NRCs. We talked about you know state programs, etc., and other agencies you know beyond NRCs that you know that that handle these these uh, particular uh, opportunities for you. So. Anything from your end or things that you want to talk about you? I uh, I appreciate it. You're the first well, you're really the first boy we've had from Minnesota on here, so I kinda kinda
1: <laughs> like it. No, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean there's a there's a whole lot of there's a whole lot of cool things in Minnesota with all the different, you know, biomes in there converging. But one thing that kind of just on the wetland topic still that I probably should have mentioned with our, our CRP areas is we were in, in both, both the 40s, or basically two 40s that got put into it, we were able to dig out pond, basically, kind of wetland pond areas in both of those, both of those areas. So again, you know, they were able to, they were okay with it because it was something that we kind of wanted to do to create more diversity. Because like you mentioned, I mean, those wetlands, especially kind of those drier with a bunch of willows and dogwoods, I mean, those are tough to beat for, for bedding areas and sanctuaries. So that was something that we wanted to hopefully try to create on on these areas that we're putting in crp so we basically just ask hey is there a way we can be able to create some sort of wetland or some sort of you know holding pond on it and they're like yep it looks like they're you know kind of naturally is with kind of some of the contour and the topography we're able to dig out and create i think it's you know maybe like a two acre kind of area that'll end up being you know a nice little wetland and gonna put some dogwoods and and willows and and cuttings in there and whatnot too just to create that that cover so again, it's, it's kind of, you know, I think there's some kind of maybe some anti-government sort of thinking a lot of times, which I totally, you know, I get it. It's, <laughs> it's nothing that's I've haven't heard before, but I think it's something if you could kind of put that aside and kind of just, you know, have an open mind and at least again, just make a call and see what's available and you'd be surprised.
0: Yeah, I think that's good. I think it's being open to that. And I think, I think I kind of want to end there. Um, Jaden, if somebody needs to get a hold of you, I know you work you said you work in Wisconsin and, and and Minnesota and and my favorite Todd Chippies in Wisconsin. Um how do we how do we get a hold of you?
1: Yep. Um my my company's Northland Habitat. Um so you could even just, you know, go to my website, Northlandhabitat.com. Uh, and then I'm on Instagram, Northland Habitat, and also Facebook there too, and you know, shoot me a DM or you know, my numbers on, on the website too. Feel free to call or text or email, whatever works.
0: Yeah. The wealth of information and a good resource for people in that area. I would suggest reach out to him. I know people listen to this all over the country. So I really appreciate Jaden your time. And um, I'll have your contact information in the notes and, you know, anybody has any questions, please reach out to Jaden or myself and, you know, we'll get you connected with people in your local area that, that would be willing to help. So I, I appreciate your time today. Awesome, John. Thanks for having me. All right, brother. Talk to you soon. See ya. Yep. Have a good one. Bye. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.